Well, a new survey from The Vacationer, which is a reliable source, I'm sure, found that more than 51% of Americans, American adults, I should say, plan to travel for the 4th of July this year, representing approximately 132 million travelers, and that's based on the 2020 census numbers. So, who's planning on traveling? Who, after hearing that, is like, man, maybe not. Uh, uh, I'm traveling. I'm going to be road tripping with my family up to Pennsylvania, and uh, it, I, I'm sure it will be it will be adventurous, right? We're going to go see family, but um, road trips road trips are just that. There there are memories to be had on where you're going, and then there's kind of memories to be had on how you got how you got there, right? Um, and what happened in the car on the ride, and if you're still family when you get there, and all of those things. But uh, it made me think of the first, you know, big road trip of my life, and that was a spring break trip to, of all places, to Boynton Beach, Florida. I was a student in Ohio, and we were heading down to spring break. We had a chance to stay at my grandfather's house down on the north end of here. And we think we took finals at 3 p.m., packed at 4 p.m., and we left at 5 p.m., and we drove through the night to get here. And, uh, you know, there's lots of memories from that trip. I, I won't share all those for sure. But um, I had a, a good time, and, and I had good golly friends with me. But, you know, there's kind of four parts, as I posit here this morning, that make a trip, a journey, a road trip. You've got the path, right? Well, we traveled down I-75. We skipped over Chattanooga. We jumped through Atlanta in the middle of the night. Thankfully, missed the traffic. Uh, you have the people you're with and the people you meet along the way, Right? That's number two, you have problems or, or, or pain or, or sometimes progress. Maybe you found a shortcut. Maybe you found a way to skip Atlanta entirely. It'd be awesome. And then obviously you have a purpose of going. There's some reason you're going on a trip. You know, in a couple weeks we're going to see family on 4th of July. That's our purpose. So those are the four things that in my mind kind of make up a road trip. And, and honestly, as I studied Acts 21 this week, that's kind of what stood out to me. So... I want us to kind of evaluate what we're reading in light of those four things about this journey, this, this road trip of Paul. So if you would, please turn in Acts 21. We'll look in verse 1. And as you're turning there, let's remember a few things of where we are. We're in Paul's third missionary journey. Uh, he's, he's just left Ephesus. In fact, he's met these, uh, or, sorry, he's left the Ephesian leaders. He was in Miletus. And, and they, were, they were struggling with him leaving. They did not want him to leave because they knew he would never be coming back. But he said, guys, I've got to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem. I want to get there by Pentecost. I feel the Holy Spirit's leading me. Got to go. And that's where we are as we begin Acts 21. So read along with me. And when he had parted from them, he set sail. And we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there ended, we departed and went on our journey, and and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them one day. 
And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nansen of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So what does Paul's journey, this detail of his road trip, leave for us today as first pointing? Well, for clarity's sake, I want to walk through these four things that Bob has posited are the uh, four aspects of a journey. So what path is Paul on, and the when and where, what people is he with, the who, what problems and pain does he encounter versus the progress he makes, the how, and what is his purpose, the why. So let's consider the path. Well, in 2000, when I left Ohio for spring break in Boynton Beach, Florida, we did not have GPS. Like I said, I think we packed it up at four, we got in the road at five, we grabbed an atlas out of the back seat that was from who knows when, and we started making our way down in the middle of the night. And we are just going along, going to head through Lexington, we're going to get through Knoxville, we're going to get through Chattanooga, and we made our way down here. Because it, it's, it's kind of the path you're traveling. So, kind of, what's, what's Paul's route here? What's going on here? Well, Paul goes to Miletus by boat, from there to Kos, from Kos to Rhodes, and from Rhodes he gets to Patera. What's actually happening, if you are in love with South Florida and the fact that all these beautiful bear islands, there's all these little islands in this part of the Mediterranean, and they can't make a straight shot across, and so there's puddle jumping, if you will, to the next port, and they finally get to Patera, and they've got a straight shot all the way across the Mediterranean, and he takes it. And they jump on a ship, and they cross the Venetia, and they see Cyprus on the left, they keep going, they end up in Tyre, they get off the boat, seven days, then to Ptolemus, Caesarea, walking through something. You kind of you read this and think like I'm reading a log from like a, a, a captain here, or, or maybe I, I could think back being a young man, and I ask an old man in the church direction somewhere, and I get a little bit more than I expected. Like, uh, well, you head north off of uh, 804, and you go a quarter mile, and, and then, or you head west on 804, you head north on the interstate, you go 10 miles, then you hang west at 804, and turn right, and your destination's on the left. You're like, I don't know which way north is. There's a lot of details here. There's technical things here. That was direction to the airport from here, for those of you that are really technical. But um, what's happening here are a lot of details. So what's the point? Well, first, we, we have to remember, this, this is a history of the journey of Paul. This is important. He went to places, and, and there was work that was accomplished in the gospel. And, and, and Luke, being a doctor, wanting to be accurate, wanting to be thorough, wanted to give us those details so that we would have them. But there's more to it than that. We also see that 
Paul had been told, right, by the Spirit, go to Jerusalem. And we see he followed through. He made his way. He found the next boat. He jumped on the next boat. He got across. He made progress to where he was going. And, and where was he going? Well, what's the plan? We see the route. We see the plan. The plan is Jerusalem, right? Why is he going to Jerusalem? Well, you read the two chapters in front of this. He's going to Jerusalem because he has been resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia, Acts 20, 21. And after I go to Jerusalem, after I've been there, I must also see Rome, he says. You see, Paul feels that the Holy Spirit is leading him. He actually makes that clear to the, the Ephesian leaders in Miletus. What's in Jerusalem? Well, number one, need. If you flip over, look at Romans 15. He's, he, he's in Corinth. He's about to go to Miletus. This is a couple chapters back in Acts, but he, when he writes Romans, he's in Corinth wanting to go to Jerusalem. And he's wanting to go to Jerusalem because they're in need. What happened to the church in Jerusalem? They'd been scattered. They had been persecuted. They had been an, annihilated. Their, their funds had been gone. They faced personal accusation. They got sent all over. Who did that, by the way? Saul of Tarsus was largely responsible for that. The same Paul that's desperate to get back there, right? These also are the people he loves. They're his people. Romans 9, he says, For I wish I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's saying that in Corinth, wanting desperately to go to Jerusalem. They're his people. It's like Floridians for you or Americans. They're, they're his people. There's something special there. What else is in Jerusalem? Well, according to Paul himself, he knows there's pain Imprisonment, persecution, and a whole lot of unknown. And, and that's the path he's on. There's unknown and persecution. Got to get there. Got to go. So if I were to describe Paul on this path this, this morning, and, and we're looking at this path, this journey, it's spirit-led, and he's resolute. It says, the Spirit's leading me, and I am going. I'm going to make progress. You ever see, and maybe you don't see him as far down here, but I remember, you know, I'd be on the road somewhere on the interstate, and you'd see this, this car with, with a sign on the back that says, Miami or bust. And, uh, you know, they're going to go from <laughs> Traverse City, Michigan to Miami, regardless of the outcome. Basically, it's a spring break trip or a summer trip. If there's a sermon title for this morning, I think it's Jerusalem or bust. Lessons from the road with Paul. He's spirit-led. He's resolute. We're going to get there. Now, don't you also sense there's a little bit of him wanting to follow after a Savior? Don't you just read this a little bit and think, got to go to Jerusalem. And you kind of harken back to Luke 9. Like, same Luke, right? Same Luke wrote Acts, wrote Luke. And, and he said in Luke 9... He, uh, he said he would turn his head towards Jerusalem. Or Christ set his face towards Jerusalem. So why is all this significant? These are a lot of details, Bob. Well, we get a record of his journey, but we do see how intently he is headed here. We see he's making progress, even with the promise of persecution ahead of him. Even without all the facts, he's compelled by the Spirit. And he goes. The Spirit compelled him. He follows. 
Is that true of us today? Are we on the path of obedience? Are we eager to hear from God and then follow God? Are we captivated to follow the path of Christ? There is so much here that we know from the truth of God. There are so many things about how we live our life, with whom we live our life. And we may sit, and oftentimes in, I see college students, and they're, they're de debilitated, they're paralyzed, they're waiting for God's will, and there's so much right here that they can follow. Are you going? There's so much that you know to be true of God's will here. There's so much you know of what the Spirit is compelling you. Are you making progress? Am I making progress? So number one, we see Paul's path. We see it was set for him, and he's resolute on it. But number two, let's consider the people. Let's look again in Acts 21, and let's look at the people that are with him and the people he meets along the way. When I, when I lived up north, I lived in this small town in Ohio, and, and it really, I think, it had a population of 1,800. I think it had two traffic lights and a pizza store and a coffee shop. And that was about it. <laughs> and there's no reason. It's not even like on a main way. It's on a main way to another town that you don't want to go to. And there's no real reason you go through this little town. But about every two or three weeks in my office, I get a knock on my door, and there'd be somebody that'd be like, hey, I'm just coming through town. <laughs> I wanted to see you. I wanted to stop and say hi. And you'd be like, oh, my goodness. It's some alum that, or some former student or... Maybe it was somebody from Indiana I grew up with or somebody from Washington, D.C. when I lived there. And people would just constantly stop through and want to say hi. And you want to have like that, that moment of just connecting in this small little town in Ohio for no good reason, right? But they see it. They see the exit. Like, I know people there. I love people there. I'm going to stop there. But there's a little bit of that here with Paul. Paul wants to see the people he loves along the way, right? They want to see him, <laughs> fact they want him to stay so number one when we consider the people let's consider that paul prioritizes the people of god at each point on his journey acts 21 let's get a couple examples he he leaves miletus heads towards tyre gets to tyre and stays seven days in fact we don't have record he had been to tyre before as i believe doesn't necessarily know the disciples. What's he do? It says he sought out the disciples. Got to go find the people of God. Got to be with the people of God. Got to stay with the people of God. Want to invest in the people of God. So much like if you go back, I think it's Troas in first chapter 18 or, or 19. He stayed there seven days too. I, I think it's uh, Matthew Henry and Calvin both talk about the fact of like he stayed seven days in some of these places so he could ensure that he was with them on a Lord's Day. He wanted to worship with them. He wanted to be with them. He wanted to break bread with them. He wanted to fellowship with God's people. We also see he goes on to Ptolemus. He greeted the brothers and sisters, stayed there one day. Got to see him. Got to show him I love him. Got to, got to meet him. Next, Caesarea. He stays there many days. So we don't even know how many days this is. This is a while. And while at Miletus, or I'm sorry, while at Caesarea, he meets and goes to the house of Philip, the evangelist. Do we know him? We do. He wasn't called Philip the evangelist last time we really met him in Acts 8 and Acts 7. 
He was one of the seven. He was a deacon of the church in Jerusalem. He was there when Stephen was stoned. Who else was there? Saul. What an amazing story that's in like one, one little detail of this journey. This reconciliation of and the advancement of what God did through Paul in bringing him to himself and saving him and converting him and commissioning him as an apostle and Philip who is advanced and he got scattered, right? Like he had to leave Jerusalem. Now he's got a ministry here and he welcomes Paul in his home. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that only true of God's people? That when God works, he brings and binds our hearts together more than anything else. Well, Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. I do not have a lot to say about that. That's pretty interesting, though. Uh, I would say that it does kind of show and reveal back even God's promises. That in Joel 2.32, it actually says, in this, Your sons and daughters will prophesy. In, in the time, in these last days, in the days of the church, if you will. And here's evidence of it, right? It's pretty noteworthy. So even though Paul was resolutely on the path to Jerusalem, and you could argue he was kind of obsessed with it, this was where he wanted to be. Even still, he sought out for and cared for the people of God at each point along the way. There's an organization I worked with with student leaders for a number of years, and they kind of take leaders on short-term trips to kind of help them explore leadership and ministry at the same time. They go all over the world in some really remote locations. They have this, this mission, or I'm sorry, it's not a mission, it's a motto that I don't, I'm not sure I fully understand, but I, it stuck with me, and, and I think it kind of applies to Paul here. They say their motto is, mission first, people always. And, and it's a little bit true of Paul here. Mission first, the gospel. Mission first, get to Jerusalem. Mission first, led by the Spirit. But you better believe at every point along the way, I'm going to care for God's people. I'm going to prioritize God's people. I want to be with God's people. So questions for us this morning. Do you prioritize God's people? Do you seek them out? Do you want to be with them? Do you want to show you love them? Do you want to know them? Do you want them to know you? Paul loved the bride of Christ. This in front of us is an opportunity to get to know and love the bride of Christ. As imperfect as first point is, it is the only visible expression of the bride we have right here in this location. Let's love it. Let's be a part of it. I work at a university. I have a really cool job, I think. Um, sometimes it's hard. But I get to meet future doctors, future lawyers, future nurses, counselors, educators every, every day, right? But there are days when you meet a student and they say, Bob, I feel like I'm, I'm going into ministry. I'm going to go to missions. I'm going to be a pastor. I feel gifted. I feel called. And you say, great, that's awesome. What, what, what are you doing now? Are, are you, or are you involved in a church? No, I'm not involved in a local church. Well, what's happening in your residence hall even? Like, are, are you in a Bible study? Are you, are you you're making relationships and having accountability? No. And in fact, you find out that really the only time they go to church is when they can lead in some way. That saddens me. 
Why do we think that God is going to entrust us with greater purposes if we ignore the people he made in his image in front of us each day? How can we lead his church if we don't know his church? How can we lead his church if we don't love his church? How can we lead his church if we're not in his church? So we see the path. We see the people. He loves them. He prioritizes them. Guess what? There's another side of of this as we consider the people. They love him. They want him to stay. Like they're clinging to him. If you go back to verse 1 at 21, it doesn't say, as we kind of read, and we left them. It actually, the more accurate verse in verse 20, in chapter 21, verse 1, is not we departed, it's we had to tear ourselves away from them. Meaning they were clinging on. Don't go, Paul, stay with us. Where do we see it? Well, we saw it in Miletus. They, they knelt and prayed with him. There was much weeping. They embraced, they kissed, they were sorrowful because they knew he wouldn't be coming back. And they accompanied him all the way to the ship. They are at water's edge. Entire, kind of the same thing. They walk out of the city with him. They bring their wives and children. They pray with him on the beach, and they say farewell. And then we get to Caesarea. There's even a little bit more, right? We get to Caesarea, and there's more detail of how the people loved Paul, and they want his well-being so badly that they're going to confront him, right? Well, just a quick encouragement. This is something for us, right? This is good. This is a good thing about these local churches. It's a good thing about God's people. We should care for the people that lead us. We should care for the people that are over us in the Lord. We should want to accompany them. We should want to help them. I'm not saying you had to take David to the airport this week, but I am saying that we should be caring what they're doing in Nashville. I am saying that we should be caring for their families while they're gone. Saying we should be praying for them, that they would stay true, they would stay pure. When we know the missions and these local ministries that we're a part of, we should want to know about them, we should want to care about them, we should want to thank the people that are serving in them. That's evident here. But we see that Paul is intentional on his path to Jerusalem, we see that he's prioritizing the people, we see that this is actually a ministry he's experiencing that's pretty fruitful along the way. It's really fruitful. In fact, this, this is a unique little, like, log of his journey. You know what doesn't happen? No persecution in this section of Acts. Guess what else doesn't happen? No shipwrecks. Guess what else doesn't happen? It actually says we had smooth, I mean, it it alludes to the idea. They had a smooth trip. There was no turbulence on the flight. They got there. It was great. Like, things are going well, and even more so with the people. They love his ministry. They love his teaching. They've welcomed him in their home. They want to be with him. They love what he's doing in sharing the gospel to the Gentiles. That would be hard to to tear yourself away from, wouldn't it? I like when I'm liked. I like to be liked. It, I, I'll stay where I'm liked. <laughs> so much so that we now need to consider the problems that Paul faces along the journey. So when I left on that road trip again in 2000, I think we got through Atlanta, great. In the middle of the night, great. We're laughing. We get through rain on bald tires in the mountains outside of Chattanooga. Um, and we get to the Florida-Georgia line. And 
the interstate's closed. The interstate's closed because there was a, a forest fire, I guess, at the Florida-Georgia line. And we had to divert all the way over to, I think, like, it felt like Alabama. Three in the morning, country roads. I was pretty sure I was in Alabama. And we took us like three extra hours. See, what happened? We hit a problem. We had to divert. We had to change our path, right? So what are the problems that Paul faces? Well, I kind of alluded to one, and, and it's, it's maybe a little hard to see this morning, but his own progress is a problem that he has to face here. You see, he has a fruitful fellowship and fruitful ministry. And they want him to stay. Minister to us. Work with us. Serve us. Serve with us. Lead us. And just in human nature, if you think through this, it is easy at times to alter your obedience based on the success of your current plan. Something to consider here that Paul had nothing to do with. He loved the people, was not changed from what their spirit was leading. It would be hard to go from a successful ministry to, got to go get persecuted in Jerusalem. Thank you, love you, please let go of my jacket, gotta go. That would be really hard, right? And even more so, they're not only it's his progress, but they're flat out opposed to him. Don't go to Jerusalem. So much so that they say, what? The Holy Spirit has led me to say, don't go to Jerusalem. They even have a prophet, this prophet Agabus comes up from Judea, and it's the same prophet we have in, I think it's Acts 10, where he prophesies about a famine, and the elders listen to Agabus, and Agabus is right, there's a famine. It's recorded in, in history, and they save money and give it to the people of Judea. So they listen to him. He's, for what we know in the Bible, he's one for one on prophecy. And he says, You're gonna, this man's going to be bound He's going to be persecuted and then and removed from Jerusalem. So wait a minute. Is there a problem here? Do we have a problem with what Scripture is saying? Somebody's wrong, right? Somebody has to be wrong. It seems that way. We, we, we have to address this. So some theologians say Paul's wrong here. Some theologians say Paul had thought he was supposed to go. It actually says he thought, in the, he, he thought the Spirit was telling him, got to go to Jerusalem. And then all along the way, he's getting warnings, and he didn't heed the warnings. He was bullheaded, goes to Jerusalem, and he didn't have to suffer. It could be, here's my problem with that. So he writes Romans before he goes there, and he tells all the reasons why he wants to go there. He talks about the Spirit. He talks about what God's doing. Then he goes there, gets in prison in there, and then he's in prison, and he writes a number of other epistles. They're called the prison epistles. Really original. And he, he writes others. He writes Philemon. He writes Philippians. He writes Ephesians. Guess what he never says in any of those? I regret that. In fact, in Philippians, he says, I am so glad this happened. This was so good for the gospel. Empowered what it happened. So I struggle with that one. Another interpretation is, they're wrong. All these people, they, you, know what, you know what? They loved him too much, so they actually just let their love 
cloud them from what the Spirit was telling them, and they're just clinging on to Him. And there's probably a little, little bit we see in that. But here's my problem with that. I don't see that. I'm not left with that. It says the Spirit led them. So here, here's where I think we are this morning. Some theologians, and I agree, argue that Paul and the Christians were, were both led by the Spirit, but had different details and vantage, vantage points of the Holy Spirit's leading. You see, those that loved him, the, the people in Tyre, the people in Caesarea, they, as I read, I see they were motivated and led by the Spirit to love Paul. They were led to care with Paul. They were led to participate with Paul. And so when they receive the news that he's going to be persecuted, being led in the spirit of, oh, let us care for this apostle, this brother, they're like, well, don't do that. But Paul had more details, right? Paul had more details of what God was doing and what he was going to accomplish and why he was to go. And he's like, this isn't anything new, guys. I knew this. I knew this two chapters ago. I'm going to get persecuted. And and I, I think that's where we are. And boy, just to stop for a second, that's tough stuff. Like if you're, if you're Paul in this situation, can't imagine being in a place where people are loving me and my ministry's great. And then they're telling me the Holy Spirit's saying something that I am hearing and trying to follow in opposition to that. So why not stay? As we consider this problem, as we consider in his response, why not stay? Why not change his course? Couldn't he have said, you know what? I have been called to the Gentiles. There's a great big Gentile world out there, in fact. And he could have been busy sharing the gospel. In fact, he was. He was carrying along the way. He was motivated, truly. Wouldn't it be wise and more prudent? Wouldn't it be more fruitful of a ministry if he just stayed on? So, to understand how he addresses the challenge, the problems, we need to look at the fourth thing. You know, we've got, the, we've, got the, we've got the path, we've got the people, we've got the problems and the progress, and we ultimately have what? The purpose of his trip. And we have to consider that to really understand. So when I went on that road trip in 2000, down here, it's pretty simple. What was the purpose? Memories with friends that I, I loved and sunshine, I think, were, was that. And that's what motivated our travel. Thankfully, Paul has a much greater purpose here. A much greater purpose. And simply, I would put it this way. Paul's life was to testify to the saving work of Jesus Christ. Paul, if you think about his epistles, if you think about what happens in Acts... He was testifying that Christ was the Son of God, that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God, that he was alive, that he was our only means to God the Father, that we have all of the promises as heirs and children of the true Israel. That was his life. That was what he was about. That's what he did. He was resolute for a reason to get to Jerusalem because he was resolute in his purpose of bearing the name of Jesus Christ. There in World War II, obviously, uh, December 7, 1941 is a day that will live in infamy, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, right? Pearl Harbor happens, it devastates the fleet. We have no Pacific fleet, and Japan is on the move. And we're at war. And we really aren't that prepared for it. 
And FDR meets with the armed forces leaders, the Joint Chiefs, and, he's, and they're saying, basically, we, we don't have a great plan, but we need to find a way to strike back at Japan soon, or the morale of the American people will kind of be devastated, right? And so they tasked this, this pilot, Doolittle, which is usually a great name for a successful mission, but Doolittle's raid occurred about 120 days after um, Pearl Harbor. And what happened? They said, we want you to go bomb mainland China and Japan. We don't really have a plan for it, but please, we've, we've got to strike. And so they go to Eglin Air Force Base, they train, and within days, I think he just spent like 30 days training, they hop on the USS Hornet, which is an aircraft carrier, head out to San Diego, then they head out in the Pacific and they go. And they're going to go bomb. Here's what happens. They're 11 hours from their target where they're going to take off off this aircraft carrier. Mind you, none of these B-52s or pilots have ever actually taken off of an aircraft carrier before. But they're going to do it. And they're 11 hours away from their destination drop spot. And they're spotted by a Japanese scout boat. Well, they blow up the scout boat, but now they're left with a choice. That scout boat radioed to Japan. They're coming. So now they have one of two choices. Pragmatically, this is dumb. Let's turn back. Let's go. Or no, launch the planes right now. So they threw all of the extra weight off the plane, and they launched all 20 planes, and all 20 planes successfully took off. Here was the problem. They're 11 hours away from their target date. What's that mean? They don't have anywhere near the fuel to get back. Not even close. So all these pilots take off knowing that. That's why they're shedding weight. And they head towards their mission of dropping bombs in Japan and China. And they all did it. They all succeeded. But all of them had to abandon their planes somewhere in the ocean, in China, or in Japan. A number of them became prisoners of war. Three of them were killed. And thankfully, most of them came back, and they were interviewed after the war, and they kind of had this camaraderie, and they were interviewed, like, was it worth it? And they said, yes, the mission of what we were doing was so important that it didn't matter if we were coming back. In fact, they have these badges. These badges say in Latin, and I don't know Latin that well, but they say in Latin, always into danger. And I think that's true when we look at what we receive from the purpose of Paul. He's always going to go into danger. He does not mind because his life doesn't matter. Ultimately, he demonstrates that in how he responds in verse 13. Look with me again. What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm not ready to be in prison, for I am ready to not only be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. So what is Paul's response here? What does his purpose, or what does his response here in verse 13 reveal about his purpose? Look, I, I, see, I see three things real quick in this area. Number one, everything in Paul's life is for the name of Jesus Christ. That goes all the way back to what um, Matt read this morning for us, right? All the way back to the time where he was blinded on that road to Damascus, he was converted and commissioned Ananias was commissioned to tell him what? He's chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he has to suffer for the sake of my name. That's Jesus speaking. Everything in his life is only valuable for the name of Jesus Christ. 
Number two, we see he's guided by the Spirit. We talked about that, but I think that's important. As he's pursuing the name of Jesus Christ, all along the way, he recognizes that the Holy Spirit will lead him, prepare him, plan for him. The Holy Spirit has informed him to prepare him. He doesn't go into persecution unknowing. He knows it. That's, that's a grace of the Holy Spirit here. And in fact, I think you could argue as we look here, I, I think he's actually preparing the Holy Spirit as we see this conflict. He's preparing the people that Paul meets for this persecution so they're not devastated when he goes to Jerusalem as persecuted. And ultimately we see Paul's purpose was entrusted to the will of the Father. Name of, name of Christ. Guided by the Holy Spirit for the will of the Father. He knew he was going to need to suffer. The Holy Spirit told him, still worthy to go. But he knew God would accomplish his purposes. He knew God was going to accomplish something that for, was for his good in some way, but ultimately for his glory. And that's what Paul wanted. That's what God wanted. And that was the best joy, the most lasting thing Paul could have. In many ways, you could say that uh, in ways that could show that the sovereignty of God in all of these actions. You see, Paul had a large view of God. When MacArthur talks about this passage, he talks about, you know, it really isn't the pain and suffering people struggle with. It's actually their view of God and the pain and the struggling. We all go through pain and struggling. It's, it's how we get through it is really, where's God in that, right? And Paul has a large view of God that these problems, these circumstances are just that. My perspective is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that God's will be done, and it puts in perspective whatever you throw at me. It is so temporary in light of what that is. I also think, just, just providence for a second, let's take a step back. I, I don't want to take our lead pastor's thunder. When I'm at work, you don't steal the president's thunder. When I'm here, you don't steal the lead pastor's thunder. But just skip a little bit ahead in Acts with me for a second. You see, what happens to Paul when he goes to Jerusalem? He's arrested. He's persecuted. But where, do they, where does he in Providence end back up? Caesarea for two years with quite a lot of freedom, I might add, as a prisoner. And who was allowed to care for him in Caesarea? These same Christians that were telling him not to go. Isn't that an amazing providence? Only God could do that. What else does he do while he's in Jerusalem? Well, what's the one of the one things he hasn't really been able to do? He's been commissioned. You're going to speak before kings and rulers. He hasn't really done much of that. Pretty much all he does in Jerusalem is speak to kings and rulers. Again, the providence of God. But most importantly, when you go to Philippians, you see that his imprisonment emboldened the gospel that other people became bold and said, the gospel shall be unleashed if Paul is imprisoned. That's what they got to participate in. That's what the Holy Spirit revealed to them. So, Paul's purpose was to do the will of the Father through the guidance of the Holy Spirit for the name of Jesus Christ and nothing else mattered. Everything else would die to this. So we've seen the path of obedience. to the. We see he prioritized the people of God. We see he faced problems and persecution on the path, but he persevered because his, because his purpose gave him perspective. His purpose of why he was going gave him perspective on anything that he had to persevere through. So what about us this morning? What does this teach us this morning? 
Well, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want to ask these same questions about this journey you're on in life. I don't think it will be helpful to ask them in the same way. Because I have to start with the question, what's the quality of the purpose of your life? For what are you living? For what of your life has value? And does that purpose die with you? Does when you die, all the purpose of your life die, or when the next person die, it die with them? Well, that's not true of what we offer you in Christ this morning, amen? We believe the gospel, and that's, it's, that's this, that there's a holy God that made us to which we're accountable, that we're sinful, and regardless of how I walk this path or how I navigate this path or how well I travel or the paths I go down, I'm not going to please that holy God. I'm sinful. We all know that. We see that in pain and suffering when we see things like COVID. We see people suffering in hospital. We know there's fear. We know there's pain. We know there's regret, remorse, uncertainty. But thanks be to God that he acted, right? That Christ came, that that the Son of God came as Jesus of Nazareth, that he lived, he taught, he died in my place. He bore my sin. He bore the wrath of God. But he didn't stay dead. He actually exhausted that wrath. And he rose from the grave. And he lives. And he lives and has ascended. And now he advocates for us. But he didn't just do that, right? He, he promised us what? He promised us his Holy Spirit. That we have him. We have his word. We have the the unfolding of God's demonstration to us, but we also have his spirit to guide us in that path. That may sound like foolishness if you don't know the Lord this morning, but it's the only thing that's lasting. It's the only thing that doesn't die with you. So what is your purpose this morning? Because if you have this purpose that does not die in Christ, who is alive, it will change the people you want to be with. It'll change your navigation of the path. It will change your purpose. It'll change your perspective. But what if you are, and I assume most of you are, believers this morning, I see many members of First Point in this morning. What is for us? Well, question one. Are you seeking out the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life? Are you actively seeking that out? John Piper, quick five ways in which you can seek that, and I agree with him. Number one, acknowledge your need. Bring your humility, your repentance, and your recognition of your dependency upon God to God. Number two, that you would meditate with God, that you would meditate on God. You would consider who God is, and that would inform you, that would inform your life, that would inform where you are going to journey that in that that you would then trust i think so much there are many people especially young people in colleges that get here and they're like i just to meditate i have to, I, I have to have the plan i have to know this i have to know this i don't have the full plan yet and they're debilitated and god's will is unfolded in front of them the holy spirit is giving them information but they're not trusting that the promises of God are real, and then number four, that they're not acting on it. So you acknowledge, you meditate, you trust, then you act. Paul acted. He was going to Jerusalem. We should act. Number five, that he think, he gives thanks. We should give thanks. We should thank God for the people in Caesarea. We should thank God for the people in Boynton Beach this morning. 
that brings me to the second question. Are you prioritizing God's people? Are you involved in a, in, in a church? Are you involved in this church? Are you involved in a caring ministry? Have you considered one of the Sunday schools? Have you considered one of the small groups? These are programs, yes, but there's more to it than that. These are ways in which we can actually live life and care with each other and learn from each other and hear how the Holy Spirit's working in somebody else's life and what God is doing for the name of Jesus Christ at wherever you work or however you serve or in your family. And there's something special to be had by that. Number three, how do you view problems? Do you pragmatically say, I, I, you know what, this is going to bring problems, so I'm going to avoid that? There's so many times in my life I'm tempted to pragmatically say, what's the best route? What's the smartest route? What's the most worldly wise route that I can get there for blessing and, and progress? And in fact, I should be yielded to what the Holy Spirit wants to do through whatever comes on my path. So how do you view these problems? Do you view them as devastating? Do you view them as inconveniences? Or do you view them as ways in which God might work? And finally and ultimately, what is the worth, in the uh, what is the worth of the name of Christ in your life? How large is your view of God? Persecution is coming if you are a Christian this morning. It's promised. It was promised for Paul. Christ promises it for us. In this world, you will have trouble. They will persecute you in my, for my name's sake. It's coming. And the thing that will hold us, the thing that will bring us joy in the process and ultimately a greater, more lasting joy is, is the name of Jesus Christ. That we get to participate in what he's doing, that we get to be with him in this process that the Holy Spirit's promised to us right now and he's going to lead us to Zion and we'll be with him forever. And that is way more lasting than whatever COVID is. That's way more lasting than losing your job. That's way more lasting than standing up for something that makes you awkward. What is your view of God? What is the worth of the name of Jesus Christ? It, will hold, it held Paul through persecution. It held him for persecution. He hadn't even occurred yet. He was walking towards him. It can hold us today. Even what the enemy means for evil, you will for our good. You turn for our good and for your glory. Even in the valley you are faithful, you're working for our good and for your glory. Paul saw that. May we see that even more so this morning as a church body and may we live it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the promise of your presence that comes through knowing Jesus Christ. We ask... <sighs> that we would depend on your spirit and that we would be faithful to you and that we would trust the will of God and bring our lives into a, a yielded state that would be for our good and your glory. We ask this in your name, amen.